Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of The Wayward Dragons. We are your hosts. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Johnny. Welcome back to the shit show, everybody. And a happy Samhain, which I get while you're listening to this, unless you're listening in future years, it's going to be past Samhain. But, you know, we are recording here on Samhain slash Halloween. Yes. Yes. Yes, for this episode, we're going to be going through what Samhain actually is and how that over time has transformed into the Halloween that we celebrate Nash almost globally today. Yeah, well, yeah, I think because of Americanization, a lot of countries have come to do Halloween in similar ways that America has. Uh, but in cultures all around the world, you know, this is Samhain ties into the Harvest Festival and stuff. And uh, a lot of cultures throughout the world have similar traditions and similar things going on. Yes. And we'll get into that maybe in later episodes. We'll dedicate like a one to Dia de los Muertos and stuff like that. Because I did find that a lot in my research, how Samhain intertwines and all these other holidays around the world right but in america we it's we either go big or go home and we went big and we changed a lot of the traditions that were once something else and the church also changed a lot of things i also found that a lot of things started out as just sawin and then it transformed into a weird purgatory thing well yeah there was like the catholic church made like five or six other holidays to kind of try to let's take it and counteract this by taking it and splitting up what it is and spreading it out and moving it around and uh yeah then it kind of all came back together into what is currently known as halloween yes uh yeah so but before we get into that we can do our reading recommendations because we both are big book nerds with this a lot of audiobooks while we're at work both of us what did i just finish the graveyard book by neil help me thank you thank you Um, on, on audible he actually narrates the book which I found kind of interesting because it gives them gives the actual author a chance to make the voices for his characters, which I find kind of funny. Um, yeah. Well, it, like like I had mentioned before, he also uh, the comic series he wrote, the Sandman series, they've been turning into audiobooks. He actually narrates those, and then those are actually fully casted. Uh, they have like Kate Denning actually does the voice of Death, which is so perfect. Yeah. But yeah, no, he is he is phenomenal. He's a phenomenal author and narrator. He was a good narrator. The book was just kind of <laughs> like yeah. it was a it was a collection of short stories from this kid's childhood of growing up in a graveyard and um he actually incorporates a French Day of the Dead kind of celebration where they would paint themselves to look like corpses. And then it would be a living in the dead dance type thing. So he does incorporate that into the book, which I found kind of weird. 
it's like, oh, I'm researching this holiday, and oh, this is part of this book, which I found kind of interesting. So I thought that was kind of cool, but it's it's okay. It's okay. And then I also found um, a Sonu Howe, um, The Victorian Secrets. They did another one on um, Edwardian times. Hmm. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. On Audible. Yeah, I'm an Audible fun. fan. <laughs> <laughs> you get a lot of free stuff with your subscription. And yeah. I, get, I get bored. <laughs> I run out of all my podcasts that I listen to. All my true crime podcasts, I get all caught up. And then I'm like, what am I going to listen to? It's five in the morning. I have another hour before I interact with normal humans. I mean, I can recommend all sorts of fun things, oh, depending on how much time and effort you want to invest <laughs> in stuff. Minimal. <laughs> uh, Click, play, it's it. Put my little headphones on and off we go. I actually just finished reading uh, Lost Gods, which is a novel by Brom, who it is a, I'd say he's probably my second favorite modern artist, but he is an amazing occult artist and uh, he has a few books out, but it's the story of essentially it's a young man who uh, has to descend into purgatory to save his wife and unborn child from monsters and it gives a really interesting take on the depiction of purgatory and a very interesting take on what eternity could look like, uh, you know, from an esoteric standpoint. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. You doing anything fun to celebrate the holiday? No. Um, I will probably be buying some of my grandma's favorite candy and lighting the candle that I have for her. Um, that's about the extent of it this year. Cause I'll be cooking food that she does not like <laughs> for dinner tonight. So there's no point in me making a dummy setting of something that she won't eat. Yeah. So, but I figured I could at least get candy that I know she will like. Um, and stuff. Cause it, that's one of the reasons why I actually wanted to kind of dive deep into this holiday and the ancestral tra- traditions is because I did lose my grandma in August of this year. So it's just fine ways that I know to honor her in a weird way. So, right. Cause that was actually one of our last conversations weirdly was about this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so but that's that's all I'm gonna do. What are you gonna do? Um, you know, I may do a dumb supper. I probably not though, because I haven't really had time to prep with everything else going on. Because life, uh, it's been a hectic last couple few weeks and all that fun stuff. Um, so I will probably just. Either set in quiet contemplation or depending on the weather because it's been kind of stormy out. I may try and have a small need fire and do a little bit of a uh, outside ritual. Um, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Depending on weather, it's been 
raining off and on here for the past few days. Same. So. So, for this one, it will mainly be me talking with you kind of giving your little thoughts as I go through this. Because this this is a lot of information. I found a lot of different stuff while doing this research. Um, a lot of this comes from two Wikipedia articles. And then a book on Audible about Sawin, And then a um, book called Trick or Treat. I forget the author's name. I'll include it in the show notes for everybody. Um, but she actually, the Trick or Treat book... I actually got a lot of how America kind of changed this holiday from that one, which I thought was kind of cool. So it's, it's really transformed from what it used to be. And then the church kind of messed with it. And then America was like, I'm taking over. That never (laughs) happens. America never takes over anything. No, sort of, sort of, sort of. I've also, I'll take it and I'll send you some book recommendations as well that you can drop into the, uh, into the description. Yeah. That way, if anyone wants to look into these books, uh, or, you know, depending on if they want to try some spirit communication or whatnot, uh, I've got a few books that I could recommend for that. Yes. Ooh, maybe we could, um link a Goodreads to our Facebook page. That actually wouldn't be a bad idea. We should definitely make a Goodreads for the podcast. Yeah, because this podcast will kill you. They have a huge Goodreads list of all the books that um, the one Aaron reads about infectious diseases. That's actually a really interesting podcast for everybody. It's called This Podcast Will Kill You. It's two PhD epidemiologists and that's what they talk about is infectious diseases it's actually kind of cool but they do they do have a very interesting podcast they do a whole um covid series so that's kind of interesting and it's still ongoing they do their covid series as it as this whole thing keeps going all right so like I said earlier, we're going to start with what Samhain was slash still is, as it is practiced by a lot of neo-pagan and Wiccan people. Um, I didn't really get into the whole how Wiccan people celebrate this, because we are going to do a Wiccan kind of series, so I figured we can kind of include that with that. Um, so Samhain is actually a Gaelic festival that marks the end of the harvest season and the beginning of winter or what they would call the dark part of the year. It's one of the quarter festivals alongside Beltane, which you celebrate in May, your May Day type thing, Embolic, and I don't. Lunasant. Lunasant. Thank you. I actually saw saw this spelled two different ways with a um, B and an H at the end, which I Mm -hmm. thought was kind of interesting. Because Gaelic is a fun language with extra letters that we totally need. <laughs> yeah, found that out real quick. <laughs> oh, it's great. What? So one of my D&D characters has a Gaelic name, uh, which is it's Shihan, but it's, the nobody can pronounce it based off how it's spelt because it has like 
random B's and H's in the middle of it, and they're just like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, that's it. That's accurate. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> no. <laughs> because not everything translates over into Greco-Roman, guys. No, it doesn't. We're finding that out. I'm finding that out the more that the further along <laughs> in this podcast we get. I'm finding out that a lot of this doesn't translate right. Because yeah. um, how they refer to as spirits and fairies, I will not be trying to pronounce that. They are spirits and fairies in this. You mean the she? Yep. Yeah, it's the she. Because I could not find how to say that. <laughs> it's the she. <laughs> so it's it's fairies in my notes. <laughs> but back to it. So this festival actually began at the sunset of the 31st of October and went to the sunset of November 1st because their days started and ended with the sunset. Yeah. And it's, so it's an interesting ideology with the Celts. They believe that like with life, you start in darkness when you start in the womb and then you come into the light and then you live your life. So similar to that, their days began at some sunset and ended at sunset. Yep. That's why that kind of interesting. Um, this festival is actually halfway between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice, which I found kind of cool. Um, it is actually first mentioned in Irish literature around the ninth century because it was all basically word of mouth at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it kind of interesting that Samhain's actually heavily incorporated into their mythology there's a lot of weird mythology tales. I wanted to include them, but well, we'll save that for a later date. So with the Celts, Samhain was considered the New Year. Yes. A lot of things and that was, happened around this time. Right, because they believed in the you know cycle of life of you know life, death, and rebirth. And so a lot of that is incorporated into their mythos. Yes. Yes, it's heavily in there. Um, and because this was kind of seen as a new year, they had huge meetings. You know, they would hold great feasts, contests. This is a time that they would also um, balance out debts and stuff like that, which I found was kind of interesting. But this was also a time where the veil between the worlds was thin. This was a weird thin point because Beltane is the opposite of this holiday. So Samhain is for the dead but Beltane is for the living because of where they land in the harvest calendar. So Beltane because you're putting everything in the field and then Samhain you're harvesting everything. You're bringing your cattle back from the summer pastures and you're looking to slaughter certain um, livestock around this time. So because of that, this veil was thin and they saw their burial mounds, which I found kind of interesting, as portals. And in certain writings, there's certain rituals. I found it in like a couple different places of them doing rituals, like walking around the mound, like counterclockwise, like nine times and doing a whole bunch of stuff to make it an open portal. So nine is a very sacred number, uh, when it comes to a lot of things involving death. Uh, and so you'll get into that with like the dumb supper and stuff like that. But 
Uh, so Wittershins, which is counterclockwise, mm -hmm. and then, or, you know, against the sun, and then uh, Docile, which is clockwise or with the sun. So typically you would do things clockwise with the sun mm -hmm. during the year. Whereas with this, because it's a celebration of death and, you know, unlife and that that is past, you do the opposite, which is why they go in Wittershins. Yep. And you, I saw this a lot in the bonfire rituals that they would do because they would put out their hearth fires and take embers from the main fire that they would build. And they went counterclockwise in the village mm -hmm. because of that. I thought that was kind of interesting. So they saw the burial mounds as portals. And they, what they thought was that the, the she, these fairy spirit beings, would come through the portal at this time. So they would leave offerings, mainly of food and drinks. You see in the tales that it was sometimes um, human sacrifices. But I didn't want to say that was actually what was happening. Well, so a lot of that came from the Romans. That's what I thought. Yeah, a lot of that uh, writing came from the Romans, and there's, you know, there's no record directly Celtic that I could find anywhere that said that, yes, they did human yeah. sacrifices. Because uh, I, I know I've read in other places that the church made their tales a lot more horrific to make them seen as barbaric. So mm -hmm. I was like, mm, I don't think they're sacrificing two thirds of the village children <laughs> that's called population control i'm like mm, i can see them doing like some of the milk and some of the corn but i don't see them yeah. sacrificing two-thirds of their children when they probably wouldn't have made it to adulthood anyway so we have already talked about the bonfires um they would they would put out all the hearth fires in everyone's home they would have this huge bonfire normally on a hill and as people would go home, they would take an ember from the main bonfire, and that's what they would use to start their new hearth fire for the next upcoming year. I noticed that a lot of the divination around this holiday dealt with death, but also marriage, which I thought was kind of funny, mm -hmm. because November is, is a huge marriage month back then. Well, because it's, it's the cycle of life yeah. is what it... Yeah. Well, and they well, and they looked at a lot of uh, because this was a time of coming together mm -hmm. of the village, and so they looked at this like a time to, you know, come together as a community and you know look for significant others because you know with hope they would be fruitful. Yes, and I thought a lot of the divinations were mildly funny, and we'll get there because <laughs> <laughs> it's like really all right. Um. So one of the ways that they would use the divination of the fire is when the fire would go out, they everyone in the village would have a rock and they would place it in a ring. And then when they got to the ashes of the bonfire the next morning, whosever rock was misplaced in any way, they were likely to die within the next year. They would not make it to see the next Samhain. Um, I read that they would place two bonfires very close together and make like a little path and they would use it as cleansing. So they would lead their cattle one by one through this, these two bonfires. No, see, I've, I've seen that. I've seen that for Beltane. 
But I've never seen that anywhere for Sawin. Yeah. So that's interesting to me that you found that. Because uh, they were seen as like their wealth, their symbol of wealth is by how many cows yeah. they had. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, I saw this as this holiday kind of clashed with the church. And we'll kind of, uh, we'll talk about this more when we get to that point. Um, but I thought it was interesting that as the church was kind of taking over this holiday, they made the bonfires a symbol of guiding the souls out of purgatory. I was like, okay. Cause I saw where like people would like line their walkways and stuff with the jack lanterns and stuff to guide their ancestors back home. I saw a lot of mm-hmm. that. Um, but I only saw like the bonfire guiding out of purgatory when I started reading of when the church was trying to reamp this holiday. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, part of that probably comes from the, uh, you know, the original dead lanterns or the original lanterns they would make to, you know, carve into faces they would do out of turnips that later became jack-o'-lanterns mm-hmm. uh, that would they would use to, you know, guide souls or divert souls. So yes. because, you know, in that time period you had – mischievous spirits that would come up and especially cause problems yes especially during this time because i saw them Mm -hmm. and i found multiple stories on the origin of the jack-o'-lantern and we'll get to that i saw multiple stories the main one i wrote down though um that's the christian one yes with the blacksmith Mm -hmm. yep yep yeah it was it was said in us in one variation in wikipedia in the two books i had it was some form of this blacksmith um we've already kind of touched on this but this is the time this is time of the dead this is the time to talk about your ancestors and honor your ancestors um so you would normally set a dummy set for at the table for your loved one um and make them a plate um i think afterwards the next morning you could not eat the food I saw this in more than one place, especially when we start talking about soul cakes here in a minute. Um, it was seen as sacrilege to eat the food that you set out for your ancestor or the soul cakes that you would collect while dummying and grizzing. Right. So like the dumb supper, which has a huge, uh, there's a huge uh, take on that in Appalachian folk magic, but uh do you, I'm not sure. Are you going to go into what the Dumb Supper is at all? Okay, so the Dumb Supper is an interesting concept. Uh, so a lot of traditions uh, globally you have when you, you know, commemorate the dead, you'll take it and you'll set aside a plate. Uh, so there's certain Oriental traditions that'll take it and still do it every day where they set a plate to the side for the deceased ancestors. So the point of the dumb supper is, is that you are having a meal with the deceased. So mm-hmm. what you will do is you will take it and either you'll set a plate for them or set a place for them. And all the food will either, you'll either have nine foods on the table mm-hmm. or the food you make will be made up of nine different ingredients. And so you'll take it and you'll have that. You'll fix them a plate of everything that's there as kind of an offering. And then it is a huge, huge no-no to take anything off that plate you're supposed to take it out after the supper into the wilds or into a graveyard or something like that for the spirits yeah i saw where uh, like you would bury it yeah. um i also saw that you don't talk during this time 
while you're eating. Or if you are, you're going to talk about everything that has happened over the past year. So I found, I found either one. I found where women would make the food with their hands tied behind their back. I was like, that's a little weird. Don't think that really happened, but I didn't see anywhere. I Uh, I actually, if anyone's interested in doing this, uh, I will post, there's a tea recipe that you're supposed to drink beforehand uh, that's supposed to heighten your senses to things like that. It's mainly, well, I believe it's mugwort, uh, chamomile, and I forget what the other thing is that goes in it, but I'll post it into our Facebook group, or you and you can put it in the description Yeah, I can. as well, but it's just a... It's a tea that's supposed to help with uh, passing that barrier. Yes. Also whiskey. Uh, Believe it or not, the dead like whiskey. Well, I saw a lot of alcohol offerings. Like there's Mm -hmm. a tale of, um, I want to say it's off the island of man, Isle, Isle of Man, where they would walk into the sea. A man from the village would walk into the sea with a cup of ale, a jug of ale, and pour it into the water the sea and say something and then walk out. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what they're doing is they're pouring one out for the homies. Yep. yep. I mean, that's the exact same thing. Yeah. So I saw that in more multiple places. The celebration was during this time because the world nature was also dying. You start to see um, they would we've already talked about how they would put jack-o'-lanterns on the path to the house so that way their ancestors would find the way to the house. Um, and then you start to see mumming and got guising. So this kind of comes, this is where trick or treat mildly comes from mildly. It's been kind of morphed a little bit. Um, so mumming was an informal group of actors who would go house to house and perform something, which I thought was kind of weird. And then guising is when they would dress children and they would smear the ashes from the bonfire all over their face. Um, minor side note, I did read a lot of racial tension that happens later on when we start to see around the Civil War and stuff like that. I did read mildly about that um, because of them basically blacking out their face and stuff. So you kind of see a weird later on. I didn't really talk about it because um, I figured we'll kind of talk about that sort of stuff in a whole different episode. Yeah, then there's there's a lot of through different traditions globally. There's a lot of uh, things that have had to change because of uh, you know negative connotation because of uh, discriminatory issues and uh, race issues and stuff like that. Yes, you mildly see this with guising when it starts to when it starts to happen in the late 1700s. 1800s when you start to really see that civil war slavery stuff starts to happen i didn't really read about it when the civil rights movement was going on um i kind of did read about it when stonewall happens and how stonewall kind of launched one what we know of drag today um but also how it helped the whole costume parade Uh, thing quick side quest for all of our listeners who don't know what Stonewall is. So Stonewall was a bar in New York that was ran by the mob. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
it was it catered to a lot of LGBTQ members. Mm -hmm. uh, this was back during the time where you know the cops would literally come in and beat the shit out of you for being gay. Yep. There were quote unquote morality police and all this other stuff. Um, so at one point, the cops came in and started their usual shit. Uh, there was a trans woman of color. Mm -hmm. who said, fuck this, we're not going to deal with this, and stood up against the cops, and it started a, I want to say, four-day riot. It was like three or four-day riot that was literally a standoff between law enforcement and the LGBT community and their allies, mm -hmm. uh, which resulted in the foundation for a lot of laws being changed. Uh, a lot of things forced or, you know, transition from that. But it is also why we have Pride Month yep. every year is because that's Stonewall was the first Pride. Because the first Pride was a riot yep. fighting for equal rights for the LGBT community. Yep, yep. So huge, hugely important yes. uh, event in history yes. for the United States. Yes. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. When it, because Stonewall, and then you have Hall the first Halloween parade in New York, mm -hmm. like yeah. sixty thousand people, which I thought was kind of interesting. But it kind of um. So going back to to guising, so they would dress these children up. They would sometimes smear the ashes from the fire all over their face, um, and they would go door door to door, either asking for money or food in the form of soul cakes. Um, if you gave them anything, um, but specifically a soul cake, that meant that they, the children, would pray for the ancestor that you gave the cake for. Um, and then this is where we get the trick part of trick or treat. Um, if you did not give them anything, then they would wreak havoc or mild mischief on your house. So they would break a window. They would remove a post from your gate. Um, let your cows out. Let your chickens out. They would do some form of mischief to you. Because you did not give them anything. Well and so on a twofold onto that. One that's where the start of mischief night. Kind of came from. Mm -hmm. And two in addition to that. They would take it and they would do that. As dressed up. So you know the she would come yep. and see. Hey someone's already doing this. We don't have to worry about yep. this village. I was actually about to say that. Is they would dress them up as a way to um, prevent the she from coming after them. Because they were already doing something mischievous. And it was like a way of protecting them from these mischievous spirits in a way. Um, and if you guys have ever looked up any of these old costumes and stuff. They are so scary. <laughs> they are far more terrifying than anything Hollywood could cook up <laughs> the the turnips i kept seeing of oh, the turnip planters yeah, those are great those are scary um but i found it interesting so there's two things that i found that started on these mischief nights that actually still happen in ireland today and i found this in my trick-or-treat book um in ireland they have things called straw boys so they were a group of young boys that they dressed in suits made of white straw and they had these huge tall hats who they engaged in wild pranking and petty vandalism, but the vandalism was direct directed at families <laughs> that they wouldn't let them dance with their daughters. So if you wouldn't let them dance with their daughter, your daughter, 
they would just come mess your stuff up. Dressed all in this weird white straw stuff. Um, but now they're associated with weddings where they come in um, and they demand a dance with the bride. Which I thought was kind of fun. If I ever get married, my nephews are totally dressing up as straw boys <laughs> just to wreak havoc. Like, I was just like, really? Like, okay. I thought that was kind of funny. And then um, they also had a group called Gerlax. Um, <laughs> That's a Pokemon, right? <laughs> so, maybe. I mean, you could probably make it That's into one. Snorlax. Um, they would announce themselves by firing a shot over your house. They would come into your house, and then if you let them into your house, they would bang like they had walking sticks, and they would bang their walking stick on the floor and demand food and liquor. And then if you gave them what they wanted, then they'd leave. They're also very where do popular. I need to, where do I sign up for this at? <laughs> um, I mean, I'll go, I'll go to someone's <laughs> house, bang a walking stick, and demand food and liquor. Yeah. Although, I'm sure the cops will get caught on me if I do that, but... In Ireland, they are hired. They are mainly associated with weddings and Christmas, and you—they are—you can possibly hire them for your wedding. I thought that was creepy and mildly funny. <laughs> hey, man, the Irish just, just, just wait until we get to Yule and we start talking about some of like the Welsh traditions oh, and stuff. There, <laughs> don't remind the me the horse skull, horse skull. That's all I gotta say. Uh, we're about to get into that. Um. So, during the 19th century in Ireland, the guises, those little children dressed up with ash on their face, they would sometimes have what was called a hobby horse. So, it was a man in a white sheet with a huge decorative horse skull on a stick. And he would parade these children around going house to house blowing cow horns. And they would recite these verses and stuff. And in um, the book Trick or Treat, a lot of the verses and stuff that they said at the time, are actually in the book, which I found kind of interesting. And then once the verse was done, the house that they were at, the farmer would either give them money or food to make them go away. But I found interesting in Wales, the tradition was used with a gray horse because a white horse was the omen of death. So the main story that I found for the turnips, pumpkins, origin, was that there was a blacksmith named Jack who was too evil to go into hell, but because of the deal that he made with the devil... He could not go into heaven. So he was stuck in purgatory for forever in like the last flame of hell closing landed and he scooped it up and put it in his little turnip so he would have some form of light. So I thought that was kind of... Yeah, we learned that back in Sunday school and I was like, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. And now in my life, I'm like, this makes even less sense. I found it in so many different variations, but it was all the basic same storyline. Yeah. Well, that's like, you know, that's the Christian church is like changed so much stuff. Uh, so much stuff. Well, so again, much. we'll get into this when we do our Yule episode, but we learned that in Sunday school one time that the reason we have Christmas trees is because it's a reminder of God's love and how God's love will persist through anything. No. And I, that, that, that's, that's not, not true. That's not even close. That's not true. That's not even close. I haven't even started that research and I know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to get into a lot of the divination that's involved with this holiday. So after they would go do their mummying and grusing, 
they would come back and start doing these divinations. So a lot of the divinations, as we've already talked about, they they let you know if you're going to make it to next year, or if you're going to get married, or if you're going to end up as a spinster. It's mainly what I found. But they're funny and, and slightly ridiculous. A lot of them involve apples or hazelnuts. Um, apples were seen as a um, strong, it was strongly associated with the other world, which was their underworld. And then hazelnuts um, were associated with divine wisdom. So that's why you, it's mainly the two of them. Um, so they would take turns apple bobbing. Apple bobbing started at this time. Um, I think if you bit the apple, you were be you would marry within the next year. And then if you got the coin at the bottom, you were going to be rich. Um, also, well, there was also this may be the next thing you're going to mention. Sorry, uh, there's also uh, tether apple. Yes, apple I did not actually include this one because there's two different forms of it. So they would either put the apple like a tether ball and uh-huh. <laughs> you had to bite it with your hands behind your back, or they would put it on a stick, apple on one end, lit candle on the other, and spin it and hope that you bit the apple. And <laughs> not the lit candle. I was like, who made this she up? Smacked at the sound of the face. <laughs> like, who made this up? Who thought this was a great idea? <laughs> like, so, the apple tether one just cracks me up because it's literally a you're either getting whacked in the face by an apple <laughs> or you're getting whacked in the face by a candle. Yes. Like it was like um like uh like a like a spinner. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Um, or they would um, like um, not grease the string, but they would like put straight like syrup all over it. So like, even if you bit it, it might like slide <laughs> or like stick to your hair or something. I thought that was mildly gross. It's like, ooh. <laughs> but the, actually, the next one I was going to talk about was um, they would peel an apple and they would peel the skin continuously and then once you were done (laughs) you would throw that peel over your shoulder and the way that it landed would give you the first initial of your future partner's name yep um it was common to get two hazelnuts name them after two sweethearts throw them into the fire if they jumped apart it meant that you were not going to be a good match and you were more than likely going to argue the whole time. If you jumped together, if they jumped closer together, that meant that you actually had a very good match. Well, there's also a variation of this where if you can't decide between two sweethearts, you put three in there, yep. you're the middle one, and whichever one you're closest to is the one you should go for. Yep. Oh, this one's my favorite. Hmm, sort of. Um, They could also eat a salty oatmeal bannock. Um, and you had to eat it in three bites with no drink. And then in your dreams, your future spouse would offer you a glass of water because <laughs> they knew that you were thirsty. Um, Bitch, I'm always thirsty. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought this one was kind of weird. They would put an unmarried woman in a dark room in front of a mirror. They would ask her to gaze into the mirror in the face that she saw back. Well, she could either see one of two things. She could either see a skull, which meant that she was going to die before she ever got married, or she would see the face of her future husband. This is also at a time where um, if you would see the ghost of a living person, it was okay, because that meant that they were going to be your future spouse. If you saw them at any other time of the year, it meant that they were going to die soon. But this is the only time this 
one day celebration that turns into three days. Oh, I found one that caused a lot of pranks. Because this is also a time, like we talked about before, where pranking would happen. Um, a woman would throw a ball of yarn into a kiln. And when it got stuck on something in the kiln, she would ask who it was. And there's normally a boy hiding in the kiln who would say something and freak her out. Um, Did you find the one about the cakes? Yes, where they did the like, cakes and stuff. They would bear, like bake random things and cakes. Yes. And depending on what came out would depend on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I saw it more as a blindfold tradition um, where which I, there were so many options. And we, as Americans, did a weird twist on this. Um, so that never happened. Uh, it's a weird one. It turns into like a weird military tradition um, depending on the color. Like, so eventually it turns into bowls of water. And in America, like, they make it so that way, like, the colors of each bowl are a certain branch and depending on which bowl you picked was the branch of military that your your partner or your spouse was going to be from. It's a little weird. Because um, eventually it starts out as these people would know them more as king cakes with the, the baby in it from Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would bake, like, they would. They would bake random things into these rings. Like a ring, a coin, a thimble. I think Mardi Gras is one of the few Christian traditions that's not based off paganism in any way shape or form no um but like the ring meant that you were going to get married the coin meant you were going to be rich the thimble meant that you were going to be a sinister forever um but like they would mainly have it in bowls so um if you pick the bowl with the ring in it that meant you were going to get married soon um if you pick the bowl with the clay it meant you were going to die soon water meant that you were going to travel somewhere you were going to immigrate somewhere if you picked the rosary that meant that you were going to take up holy orders you were going to become a priest or a nun the coin meant if you picked the coin, that meant you were going to be rich. And if you picked the bean, that meant you were going to be poor. Um, they also, I found this kind of funny. Um, they also have divinations around cabbage and kale. So later on, I found this later on, a lot of the foods during this time were meatless. And they involved cabbage and kale. Yeah, so one of my favorite Celtic dishes is called Colcannon, and it's basically mashed potatoes with either stewed cabbage or stewed kale Mm -hmm. and mixed in with it. It's freaking amazing. Yep, Yep. and you see a lot of divinations about um, going into these kale fields and picking a stalk hanging it over your threshold, and you would, someone would interpret the stalk part um, us as Americans, we put a more grotesque spin on this. It would make people walk through graveyards before they got to the cabbage or kale field. You don't plant your cabbage and kale right beside the graveyard? No, What's wrong with you? No. But yeah, there was a little bit involving kale and a lot of the, just a little bit of like the the stalks at the bottom, what it would interpret. Um, so as time went on, this holiday and these people eventually met christians and christianity and this is where stuff starts getting a little weird and it starts morphing but a lot of this this um misinformation can be linked to one human one human being um so he was a british military engineer called charles valinsky and he was sent over to ireland as a way to survey the land and everything but at the time At the same time, while he was there doing this, he fell in love with Irish folklore and mythology. The only problem was, is everything that he wrote down was not true. He just 
morphed it into what he wanted. And the problem is, is now, and we'll talk about this more later, is people today still use the stuff that he wrote as a justification for not doing this holiday when none of it is true. Um, Like he brings in Bal. Balzabub? Nowhere is that name in Celtic folklore. Nowhere. But he, we put it in there because he saw it as a, as the devil's holiday. It was his birthday. And it's just like, bro, it's not even in anything. You can't just make up a name and throw it in there. But his writings is what fueled a lot of the fear. Even though everything that he wrote was wrong, it still ended up on, on a lot of shelves in the United Kingdom. Well, what would become the United Kingdom? Um, even though a lot of what he wrote wasn't true. And uh, and people at the time knew that he was wrong, but people didn't care. So you're telling me <laughs> misinformation is a bad thing <laughs> and creates negative connotation yes. on a whole. On a whole different scale. Whole different scale. Huh. Interesting. Interesting thought. Um, I wish we had known that. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, a lot of his work, even during his lifetime, was dismissed by a lot of his fellow colleagues. Um, they knew that what he was writing was false. That didn't matter. His still, still his work ended up on shelves all over Britain, Ireland, everywhere. Um, it fueled a lot of this fear so that when the church came in, and I found this interesting... Um, cause at this time the church is starting to go everywhere. We're going everywhere. Um, and Pope Gregory the first in 601 suggested instead of like stomping out these Celtic traditions, let's just kind of rename it and incorporate our stuff into it. Um, so even though this man was giving misinformation, you still had the Pope basically saying, we're just going to kind of let them keep doing what they're doing. And we're just going to kind of put some Christian things on it and just call it done. Um, and you'll see this prevalent later on when they start messing with stuff. Um, these Celtic people were not going to give up their holiday at all. But Pope Gregory the first basically suggested to an abbot that they convert existing temples and rituals so that they, they, they're not destroyed. Um, but they, but they turn them into Christian purposes. Um, they make pagan gods, Catholic saints, um, you see this with voodoo, where their stuff becomes Catholic saints and stuff. The mid-8th century, Pope Gregory III, he wanted to move All Saints Day from May 13th to November. Because they were finding out, because they've, they've done this twice. The Catholic Church has moved All Saints Day from May 13th to November, and then back to May, and then back to November. This all happens in the course of, like, 200 years. Um, so, Pope... Gregory III moves it from May to November in hopes of kind of solidifying everybody of like, hey, these people are already celebrating basically what we celebrate in May. Let's just do what they do. Catholic Church is like, no, move it. And then they start banning practices of Samhain, like bonfires and bell ringing. But these people are like, no, no. So the Catholic Church is not forced, but they move it back to November 1st. Um, And then you have the addition of All Souls Day. And that's where it starts to become All Hallowtide. That's where we start to have this three-day holiday was just one. So we went from Samhain to Samhain and All Saints Day to Samhain, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. Because All Saints Day was to remember all the saints. And then All Souls Day is to remember all of these souls that are in purgatory. Um, 
so adding All Souls Day is what transitions this from a Megan, mainly a pagan holiday to a Christian holiday. This is where we start to see the shift in it. We see more shifting after World War II. Um, I do find it interesting. So while the Catholic Church is trying to mess with stuff, you do have King Henry VIII. Him and his daughter Elizabeth actually do try to squelch a lot of these Celtic practices. They do try to ban bell ringing. Um, and they try again to ban bonfires. There was um, an attempt by England and the church to ban bonfires in the late 600s, early 700s. Um, and they tried to ban need fires, which are fires by friction. So they have tried to kind of squelch this holiday before. And then eventually they just, just kind of give up. They're like, whatever, we can't win. <laughs> so I was about to say, how that's, how's that going for them? Yeah. <laughs> they eventually figure out that they're not going to win against these people. So around the same time that Henry and Elizabeth are trying to ban bonfires and church bells. We also are having the burning times. The burning times are going to start around this time. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these burnings or accusations would actually happen on Samhain because they saw it as their witch Sabbath and that that was the time that they were being the devil's consort. So a lot of times they would get accused on Samhain. Um, a lot of our ideas images of what what of our what halloween looks like you know a witch over a cauldron with that big boil on her nose and the cats and on a broomstick and stuff like that a lot of that imagery starts to happen around this time we'll talk about cats and stuff later and the major significance of black cats also around the burning times <laughs> This is, this is one of our favorite people that we like to talk about. Is a man named Guy Fox. So in 1606, he was caught underneath Parliament trying to blow the whole thing up. And before he was even executed, because he was hanged, drawn, and quartered, um, before that even happened, Parliament had passed into law Guy Fox Day, which happened on November 5th. Remember, remember the 5th of November. He, he's had a reamp because of Anonymous and V for Vendetta. But at the time, Parliament made the day as like a, this is what will happen to you type thing. But Guy Fawkes Day actually, weirdly, took on the traditions of Samhain and All Saints Day and All Souls Day. So even though Henry and Elizabeth were trying to ban these holidays, and at one point they mildly were successful... Guy Fawkes Day was happening on the 5th, and it was basically all the same traditions that they were practicing to begin with. Um, with the exception of when the kids would go around guising, they would, the money that they would ask for would be used for fireworks for the 5th. Yeah, in 1647, they tried to ban the three-day holiday and just keep Guy Fawkes Day. Um, that obviously didn't happen. Um, around this time, you start to actually have the Great Potato Famine. Um, and a lot of Irish and Scottish immigrants start to immigrate to the New World. Um, this is another turning point for All Hallowtide. Um, it, this is where it starts to get its boom. 
this is one of the this is one of the major points is when all these people started to immigrate and with them they brought all these traditions we as americans we kind of put a minor twist on things but i think that's also people trying to make something their own in a new world new country let's change it up i did find it interesting actually during the american revolution george washington was actually opposed while this was going on to celebrate all hallow tide because he did not want to offend their french allies because they thought it would might upset the religious views even though they have a tradition of dancing with people dressed like corpses we're going to talk about one of my favorite things so all these people started coming over and they started doing their own little thing doing their traditions and then this man named washington irving in 19 in 18 1820 writes the famous story the legend of sleep of sleepy hollow and there's a lot of stories about headless horsemen in other cultures. We'll go into that in another episode. But he kind of launches the whole pumpkin thing. Pumpkins are now very solidified as your jack-o'-lantern after Sleepy Hollow. Because there was kind of a toss-up between turnips and pumpkins in the New Americas. You know, you see more pumpkins in America and like turnips over in Ireland and England. After Sleepy Hollow in America, it's just, it's pumpkins. Well, that's partially because pumpkins were a lot easier to come by they and were. grow in the States. That is also. Um, that is a fabulous movie. For those of you who have not watched The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Tim Burton with young, young Johnny Depp. It's a great movie. Well, he's not that young in it. He is. He's quite young. I love Johnny Depp. I love that man. <laughs> and I love Tim Burton as I have my <laughs> new Halloween sign. Jack Skellington. It says all hail the pumpkin king behind me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also around the time of the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, you kind of also start to see um, the animals that you normally associate with Halloween and all all hallow tide i'll flip between the two words um it they even more solidify after the whole postcard thing that happens in the early 1900s um you start to see owls bats cats specifically the black cat um it was also thought that black cats were used in occult rituals which is one of the reasons why you need to keep your cute little black kitties inside um because even today People will take your black cats and kill them. Mine is asleep right here. Oh, my co-host is currently sitting in the chair beside me. Um, my black cat is probably sleeping on the mound of laundry I have to fold. Bats become popular because of Bram Stoker's Dracula also comes out around the same time as this. So the man that turns into bats, he's the one of the reasons why bats become and vampires become a part. Of Halloween. You also see a shift in the colors. So it was brown, yellow, and white, your normal like autumn colors that you see. Shifts from that to your orange and black. And in recent years, we have purple. Yes, we have added purple. Black, purple, and white is a weird color combo that you start to see now. Mm -hmm. Just like everything else, we're coming down off this hill, this of where Halloween's kind of getting this new recap because of being in the Americas. And then we start to hit the Great Depression, where this holiday 
really starts to take a back burner. Um, people just don't have the resources to do these things. You know, money's tight, food's super tight. So they, they just don't have extended income in food. And then also you run into the Great World Wars. So you have foods on ration, a lot of stuff's rationed. So you don't have luxuries and stuff like that. So this holiday really takes the back burner. But you start to see, this is where you start to see an increase in it being called mischief night. This is where the pranking starts to turn into vandalism. They would break windows, you know, do horrible things. And I found in, in some um, in some cities, they would, it was cheaper to buy a train ticket for the pranksters to go out of town than it would be for them to stay in this, this, the village or city and do their pranking. So a lot of time for Mischief Night, <laughs> they would buy a plane, a pr- plane, Jesus, a train ticket for these people to go out of town because it was cheaper than that, than the destruction that they were going to do that night. So they would just like literally send them out of town to do yeah. destruction elsewhere? Yeah. That's, that's funny. They would send them to like super rural areas so like they didn't have a lot of stuff to vandalize if they were going to do it. Um, but I found that very interesting that they would just ship them off places. Like, here you go. I don't want to deal with you. So you're going to go over here. <laughs> See you when you get back. I don't, I don't remember <laughs> what started it. Uh, back when I was younger, we had a tradition where, and we, of course, we always were the ones that cleaned it up. But me and my <laughs> older brother and older sister would always go and roll my grandparents' house. <laughs> like we, <laughs> like my mom would take it. My, my mom would drive us to my grandparents' house. Then she'd stop at the bottom of the driveway. We'd go up the hill. We'd spend like a, you know, just cover everything in toilet paper. And the next morning we'd always go. And she knew it was us. Oh yeah. But you know, sure. she, she's just like, what, what, what are you kids doing? <laughs> what are you doing? So, so we'd go over there the next day and help her clean it up and stuff. But yeah, just yeah, harmful pranks became a tradition. Yeah. Well, and that's the, kind of what it's associated with now is going and teeping somebody's yard or forking shaving cream. You harmless, know, rather, not it's harmless thing. stuff. But back then during this time, people were destroying people's property Forking is not harmless. That will screw your lawnmower up. <laughs> Forking is not okay, boys and girls. Whatever. We did in high school. I mean, that's junior, senior pranks. That's completely different. True. Um, but it was also not on Halloween. Um, so they started shipping these people off to other places because they were just like, I'm tired of dealing with your shit. I'm done. Off you go. Um... Because these people didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have the money to fix things that these people were breaking. Um, Because even back, way back when, the harmless pranks were like, we're going to remove the post in in your gate. You know, we might break your window. We might mess with your chickens or something. Let your chickens out. Break your mailbox. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. It wasn't destruction of property. And that's the problem that you're running into in the Great Depression is these people start destroying people's property. Um, and they start to think of ways to keep these people in town, but how to manage them. So they start doing a lot more activities in school with these kids. But you also start to see uh, parties. This is when Halloween parties start to come become big. Um, it was almost like a block party that they would kind of set up. 
Each house would be a different theme for these kids to go to. Also, it was a nice way for all the families to pool their resources together. It was a time they didn't have a lot of money. So they could pool everything together and make something great for the kids in the neighborhood of this is a themed Halloween because they didn't have the money to buy candy or make homemade treats because this still was the time of homemade treats. Mass production of things did not happen for a little bit. I found it interesting the first use of trick-or-treat was in Alberta, Canada in 1927. And then later, it showed up in America later on in the early 30s. So blame Canada. Blame Canada. But I found it interesting. So a lot of the imagery that we have of Halloween, not only did it come from the witch hunt, but it came from these wonderful postcards that were happening around the same time. Um, This is a time in the early 1900s that we're kind of we're in a weird in-between in communication. We've got telegraphs, but people are still sending things by letters. We're at a weird in-between with gas and electric. So there were these huge, huge boom in postcards. And they are, in the book Trick or Treat, she actually includes some of them. And they're interesting because at the end of, you know, you're getting towards the end of the One World War, you start to see like a pinup style postcard, which was kind of interesting. But a lot of our imagery starts to come of Halloween from that. The the scary scarecrow and the scarecrow with the jack-o'-lantern head and your um, cats and the normal-looking witch. You know, she doesn't have a big-ass boil on her nose, you know, or the huge nose to begin with. But it wasn't until the end of World War II that Halloween starts to become what we know today because of the end of the war rations rationing is done people finally have extra money to go buy these extra luxuries and actually celebrate holidays like they're supposed to they start having parties as a way to kind of get these kids these preteens teens away from pranking so instead of pranking they would offer these halloween parties for them to go to you start to see a change in costumes Um, costumes for a very long time were homemade. Um, In the 1950s, you start to see production of different types of fabrics. Um, Those of you who don't know, a lot of children's clothing now is fire retardant, and your Halloween costumes for your children are. Is it really? Yeah. I have a couple small children that I know I can throw (laughs) in the fire and see how true that is. Um, but one of the reasons why early on that the Halloween costumes were fire retardant was because candles were, were still in jack-o'-lanterns that these poor children were carrying. And there are a lot of cases before mass production of costumes that children would catch on fire because of the, the candle in their jack-o'-lantern. So they would take it, they would have the jack-o'-lantern since they didn't have flashlights and stuff. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But at the same time, you're having TVs changing. So with the mass production costumes, you could not only provide safer costumes for these little children, but you could also let them be their favorite character, like from Howdy Doody. You know, the Power Rangers, Ninja Turtles, you know. I can be Michelangelo now, you know, or Mario. So you start to see that. You also start to see mass production of just products in general. Um, 
specifically paper products. So your paper cups, your paper plates, utensils. This made it they this made it easier for families to throw those Halloween parties, but cheaper. And you start seeing mass production of candy. And the first candy, wouldn't you know it? Mass production, <laughs> fucking candy corn. Fucking gross ass shit. I love candy <laughs> corn. Fucking eat that I, shit. I can eat so much candy corn. I will get sick off. As a, I'm not a sweets person. No, you're candy not. Candy corn. Candy corn is one of the sweets that I love. Like I, candy corn, circus peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. But yes, candy corn becomes the first mass produced candy available for trick or treaters, followed by your normal candy stuff that you find nowadays, you know, Hershey's, you know, Nestle and all them. And that you start to see a major change in things, you know, retailers way before what we have now, it's nothing compared to what we have now, but that was their purpose every year was like, we're going to change the candy and aim it towards Halloween. And then you also see at the same time of this mass production of stuff, you start to see UNICEF. UNICEF is born. And I actually remember doing this um, in school. You build a little box for UNICEF. And around Halloween, you would go instead of candy, you would ask for money for UNICEF. Mm -hmm. This is actually how UNICEF makes a lot of their money. (laughs) Do they still do this? Yes. Yes. But yeah, instead of going around for trick-or-treating, you would ask for money for UNICEF. You also see a change in jack-o'-lanterns. So you go from this candle in this pumpkin to this battery-operated plastic astrosity to the hollowed-out candy carrier that you have now. And all the different colors that it comes in. Nowadays, um, I've actually seen this a few times. I've actually done it, too. Where instead of asking for candy, some teens will go around asking for food for their homeless shelters instead of candy around this time. Hmm. Well, probably nowadays, but not around this time. But Halloween, Halloween after World War II kind of changed a lot of things. So you have this mass production of costumes. You have mass production of just products in general. And, and the holiday really starts to change away from this honoring the ancestors to just give me the candy, bitch type stuff because kids saw it as a way of of rebelling you know as a way that i could be whatever i wanted and at the same time i got to stay past my bedtime and that being whatever you wanted not only was for kids but it was for adults you had you know adult parties costume parties costume contests and stuff and specifically this is a good outlet for the gay community this is a nice time to cross-dress if you weren't comfortable doing it out in the open because it's Halloween. You can be whatever you want. So it started to become an outlet once costumes started to be aimed towards adults. It was a way for the gay community to kind of express those boundaries and kind of push push the boundaries a little bit. And like we've already talked about, the first Halloween parade starts after Stonewall. And it, they had like 60,000 people that year. Huge amount of drag queens and drag kings were part of this holiday. You start to see Halloween parades show up in San Francisco in a lot of different gay cities around this time. And interestingly, earlier, you start to see this monster culture start happening. So Universal Studios actually 
released a 52 movie package. And this included a lot of the classic horror movies that we know today. So Dracula, Frankenstein, Frankenstein's Bride, um, The Wolfman, all those great black and white horror movies that are kind of the baseline of what we know now came out around this around this time. Well, so delving into that a little bit, uh, where it's not something for our podcast, but if anyone's interested, uh, there is an amazing podcast called American Hysteria that they actually go a deep dive uh, into the history of monsters and history mm-hmm. into you know american folklore and stuff like that relating to monsters mm-hmm. uh definitely worth checking it out there's not very many podcasts that i would plug but definitely definitely worth checking it out uh amazing series with that one in particular it's a bit eye-opening and fairly interesting where uh, we get a lot of imagery and ideology especially in the united states for monsters mm-hmm. yes but you start to see after this is released and i want to say early 30s 40s type thing you still get your black and white films um the famous song monster mash is because of this whole 52 movie series that comes out So not only you have this monster culture that starts to happen, you have music. You have certain themed Halloween music that's also coming along with this culture. So you're mass-producing costumes. These kids can be the wolfman as they go trick-or-treating. But as they're trick-or-treating, you also start to see decorations. Decorations start to change. So you go from paper products, like really tacky-looking stuff, to what we have today of just shit everywhere inflatable plastic oh yeah like the huge skeleton that i keep seeing on mfm facebook or um instagram feed or re- no it's the reddit feed the mfm reddit feed <laughs> of the huge 12 foot skeletons in the wild but as all this stuff is happening in the late 60s 70s you know this post-war era and stuff you know you start to see that people are going to take pride in decorating their house. And then you start to see haunted houses. So haunted attractions have kind of been there kind of all along, but you kind of start to really see them being like streamlined after um, the haunted mansion opened in Disneyland in California. And a lot of people, what? (laughs) Would this also be around the same time you start to see a rise in, uh, like, corn mazes and stuff like that? Okay. Yes. And we'll get into that in a minute. Because that is thanks to one man. Um, So the the animators for specifically the Haunted Mansion Disneyland that is in California, um, a lot of people that do haunted houses today, like the Netherworld and stuff like that, they attribute going and walking through the haunted mansion in California is what sparked them to do their haunted house. So the opening of that is when you start to see all these haunted houses show up about 30 minutes North of the Disneyland haunted mansion. There's a farm called Knoxbury farm. And he, this man is, he is what started the huge corn mazes that you see today. He is known 
this is what he's known for is the Grudge 2 maze that he made because it was paired with the premiere of the actual movie when it came out. So you start to see all these haunted houses, all these haunted corn mazes, and then we're going to touch on the awesome spirit Halloweens that start to show up. (laughs) They start to show up everywhere. Spirit Halloween was actually started by a man out of San Francisco. He was a dress shop maker, and he noticed that if he sold costumes during October when his sales were the lowest, his sales skyrocketed. So what he did was um, he uh, started opening it instead of being in an actual shop, his own shop. He started opening it in the actual mall in like abandoned shops, and that's where you get all the spirit Halloween since this dressmaker out of San Francisco in 1999, he actually sold it to Spencer gifts. And in 2011, there was over 900 locations nationwide. So with all these decorations, they, they have to have the decorations from somewhere to decorate their homes, to make it look like these haunted houses that they were seeing because people not only were going to these haunted houses, but they were starting to make their own property kind of like a haunted maze or house for these children to walk through for them to get their candy. But unfortunately, you start to see a lot of other things because fundamentalist Christians just can't leave shit alone. You start to see what starts to become known as hell houses pop up. And this man, Keegan Roberts, he still sells them for about $300. And they are kits that you set up And it's a passive-aggressive haunted house. And it walks through the seven deadly sins. And nowadays, it includes gay rights and abortion. Yeah, so I briefly remember as a child going to one of these things. And it was traumatizing. Like, it... I had nightmares. uh, But the whole purpose is to save your soul for God. But they would take it and, you know, they they would traumatize children. By mm-hmm. making them go to these, but they would be like, you know, oh, well, you're doing such and such. Oh, well, what if you died today? You don't have God in your life, so you're going to go to hell. And yeah. it would literally be like, you know, they tell a story of like these people doing things. And then up at the part of the stage, you know, they'd go up and you'd have someone come out and be like, hey, you're so and so. Well, come on into heaven. Or they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You did this, this, and this. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, all right. And the devil pops up and like drags them to hell. It's, you know, I remember going to one of these as a child, quite traumatizing. It's weird. They have like a 35% conversion rate. I mean, you know, when you traumatize people. (laughs) It's a scare tactic. It's totally a scare tactic. I'm not going down that rant. (laughs) It's a scare tactic and that's all we'll say. Yeah. So along with these haunted houses and these horrible hell houses, you start to see scary amusement parks. Um, Universal Studios does their, it starts out as Fright Night, does, it goes into Horror Nights. But the man that does, that started the corn maze at the Knott Berry Farm, he kind of pioneers these, this um, like haunted field type thing. So I specifically remember this when I went to Universal's Horror Nights. So to get from one part of the park to the other, you would have to walk through like this huge, scary scene. Like um, I think in Trick or Treat, she talks about a gypsy camp where like zombies or no, werewolves attack this gypsy camp and you have to walk through this 
grotesque gypsy camp. So you start to see that, but they also start including that in the, like, the horror nights that start happening at amusement parks. There's actually an amusement park that opens specifically for Halloween that's ran all year round called Spook World, and it's in New England. I could not find if it was still open. Also during this time, you start to see digital animation, and you start to see CGI, which means that your normal makeup artists that were doing these makeup for special effects, yes, they're still needed, but they don't need as many of them. So you start to see these haunted houses start to get real fucking scary. Because all these makeup artists don't have jobs now. So these haunted houses start getting amped up. You start to see the ones where like they pay you $100. If you can make it all the way through, you have to sign your rights away before you enter in. I'm pretty sure we have one of those in Ohio. Ohio has the most haunted houses in the U.S. Also, around this time, so we're at the late, late 90s, early 2000s. You start to see the horrible sexy costumes. Your sexy nun, your sexy kitty cat, and stuff like that. When you say horrible, what do you mean by that? The horrible sexy costumes where they take everything and make it, like, sexualized. Even for little girls that are, like, five. Yeah, that's a whole other issue there. Because it, it's a way of, like, poking fun. Because during Halloween, it's, it's time to, like, dress up as something you're not and kind of poke fun at... You know, societal norms. So these sexy costumes started to happen. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to be this. Well, the (laughs) issue there, though, I feel like the big issue there is, you know, while it's, if it is a consenting adult, it is good for them to be able to express themselves and to be happy with their body. At the same time, that's if they're comfortable with, at the same time, you have the negative side of that where you know we have a huge issue with rape culture and a huge issue with over sexualization of children that you know you have that in there uh where the part of the issue is is that that's all you have is the sexy costumes yes you know is if you have a you know if you are not wanting to be sexy and you are a female or have a feminine body then you either have to wear something meant more for a masculine body or make your own yep it's hard to find a costume when you don't want to be like the sexy nurse or the sexy cop or whatever like it's so hard and that's when you start to see this is in the late 2000s you know you start to see all these costumes come out and it's like okay fine you want to do towards adults it's cool but you start to see it also being geared towards children which start to become that starts uh... to become a problem yeah, that's problematic on multiple levels. Yeah. But at the same time, you still see fundamentalist Christian groups. They actually use um, Belinsky's writing to this day to kind of say that someone and Halloween are demonic. It's the devil's birthday and stuff like that. Even still today, you can find websites and blogs, Facebook pages, all still dedicated to this holiday is bad. It's demonic. You know, these people practiced set horrible human sacrifices and stuff, even though everything that Velisky has wrote and has wrote about is false. What gets me about that is they say that it's the devil's birthday, yet the devil technically, first off, if you go from the Judeo Christian mythos, the devil isn't even created until if you go like him as an angel, Samael was way before that. Mm-hmm. So before we had, you know, 
dates or even the sun so how can you say it's a birthday yep. but then if you go after that with the actual foundation of the devil the actual image of the devil wasn't founded until way later yes after you know saw when everything was yes well and that was one of their ways that they could make it demonic is they would take pa- the pagan horn gods that they had and they would twist them into the devil that's where you start to see devil imagery start to happen is when the, the church tries to make someone a horrible demonic holiday and they try to mm-hmm. stomp it out you start to see images of the devil start to form that the devil is the witch's consort and stuff like that they twist pagan horn gods to to fit their narrative yep unfortunately that's unfortunate what happens with this holidays it starts out as honoring your ancestors and stuff and it's it got twisted a little bit and now it's the halloween trick or treat that we know today and it, and it's mm-hmm. getting a reamp especially with our generation there's been a huge reamp of neo paganism and wiccan so this holiday is kind of sort of getting back to its roots a little bit which i find kind of interesting so we have learned how someone became the holiday that we know today. It has gone through a lot of twists and turns over the years, over the centuries. It's getting reamped because of a lot of the spiritual movement that's kind of happening again nowadays. So for our next episode, the fifth episode, Johnny will be going into... The Seven Hermetic Principles. Nice. Which is a lot more interesting and a lot more thought-provoking than it sounds. I don't know what they are, so this is going to be learning for me. It's, yeah, I've, the book that a lot of them are highlighted in, I've had people read and like people that don't even follow any sort of occult philosophy or occult thought process. And it's, it makes you think. Hmm. This is going to be interesting. So if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. We are now on not only Spotify, but we should be on Apple Podcasts. We are on Google for sure. Stitcher and pocket casts if i remember right and anchor yes and anchor which is oh and breaker but it would be greatly appreciated if you guys would rate review rate review and subscribe tell your friends it would be greatly appreciated tell strangers yes that would be appreciated tell nice strangers i'm really tired (laughs) of angry people on the internet yeah so our facebook we have gotten so many negative like comments and stuff on our facebook because you know reason Yes, we do have a Facebook page called The Wayward Dragons. We do have an email, thewaywarddragons at gmail.com. Send us uh, your own personal story. Why why you got into the occult, if you have a scary ghost story encounter, or if we've messed something up, let us know. And hey, uh, it'd be fun to hear how you guys celebrate Halloween or Samhain. Yes. And uh, what traditions you follow there. Yes. After you listen to the episode, go to the Facebook page and leave a comment of what specifically your family does for this season for this holiday and if you've got cute pet pics (gasps) please send your kids (laughs) please send pictures of your cats (laughs) maybe i'll post a picture of apollo i'll take a picture he's so cute right now (laughs) (laughs) and until next time bye stay spooky (laughs) 